Please sweet on the Enneagram journey. The gloves will help. See? Conceal it. Don't feel it. Don't, Don't let it show. <laughs> and I guess the, the teacher had written all these things about how, how lovely of a kid I was and how much she enjoyed having me in her class. And she wrote like, and you know, Christine is so spunky and it's just been a pleasure having her in her class, et cetera, et cetera. But every time I got in trouble after that, um, from my mom, she would always say, even Mrs. Mukai thought you were so spunky. And I always thought of spunky as being like a bad word. It's like a little bitchy kid. And um, like anytime I spoke up, anytime I was kind of um, defending myself or anytime I asked questions that um, were not welcome, it would always come back to even Mrs. Mukai thought you were so spunky. And obviously it, it broke my heart because this one person who I thought saw me and loved me and thought I was awesome mm -hmm. um, was used as a tool to sort of um, suggest that being that way was not appreciated or liked. You don't know what it's like to be afraid of your powers. Be afraid to get close to anybody. Yeah, I do. I want to be able to touch people, Logan. A hug, a handshake. Yes. Welcome everyone to the Enneagram Journey Podcast with Suzanne Stabile, the Enneagram Godmother. Today's guest is Enneagram 8, Sandra Maria Van Opstel, a second generation Latina pastor, activist, author, and a powerful leading voice on the intersection of faith and justice, and if you didn't already know, author of 40 Days on Being an 8. This leaves only one more Enneagram Daily Reflections author who's yet to be on the program. So I bet you'll hear from her in the next episode. Before we get to our conversation today, the holidays are over. The new year is in full swing. I think it was Larry David in uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm who said, you can't say Happy New Year after January 7th. But what we can say, there are a lot of great events coming up. The Enneagram Journey Toward Wholeness book and podcast tour is in full swing. Birmingham is happening first. The Richmond, Virginia date has been rescheduled to April, and we're really looking forward to it. You can find all the dates and registration at lifeinthetrinityministry.com, and you can find links for it, of course, at suzannestabile.com, as well as the anygramjourney.org. But the big event of the year, where will we go from here? With the Reverend Joseph Stabile, Suzanne Stabile, and the great Brian McLaren, it's about two months away. I remember it was like about 24 months ago. It was in March of 2020. I was in Austin getting ready for Suzanne's workshop. I don't remember if it was the Stances workshop or if it was a relationships one. But I'm there at the hotel and had to send that email out to everyone uh, saying that, you know, we had to cancel. That every, everyone had canceled everything uh, for a whole two weeks, if you remember. Then two weeks became three months, which became a year and so on. And here we are in 2022. Over these past two years, have any of your beliefs changed? Are you asking questions that you haven't asked before? Are you curious how we've come to make these decisions and own these beliefs? Do you want to own and consciously name what you do next? If you answered yes to any of these questions, you'll want to hear Joe, Suzanne, and Brian. Where will we go from here? It is March 31st to April 2nd, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, it's going to be in Dallas at First United Methodist Church, Dallas, as well as online. So you can come 
join us in person or join us from anywhere in the world online and the replay will be available to everyone who registers. You can sign up at lifeinthetrinityministry.com and if you register soon enough, you'll save a lot of money with the early bird cost. Where will we go from here? March 31st, April 2nd. I hope you'll join us. And now, Sandra and Suzanne. Off the jump, did, did you coordinate the microphone and the pop screen with the wall? Like, is this intentional? No, this is just my favorite color is red. Okay. So that's my dining room in there. There you go. And uh, we went to this Turkish restaurant in Milwaukee one time, like 10 years ago. It was called Tulip. And it had all these Turkish lamps hanging from the ceiling and the walls were red. And I have Turkish lamps in my dining room. So we painted the wall red. That's how that happened. There you but go. everything we look at, this is my phone. This is my <laughs> coffee mug. All right. <laughs> If I showed you all my bags, it'd all be red. <laughs> That's so red, good. Red water bottle. On. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, you know, I want to know how the food was. Like you got a wall and you got the lamps. Oh, the, the food, food the was restaurant? amazing. It oh, was good. amazing. And actually what's interesting is that the restaurant doesn't exist anymore. I think it was in an area that um, has since developed so much. It's kind of like Soho. Yeah. And at the time, it, it, I think they were too soon. You know, it was like probably a restaurant that was too soon. Yeah. But the food was amazing. Now we go to this. Uh, my husband's from Milwaukee. So we go there every other year for our anniversary. And now we go to this dive in South Milwaukee called Damascus Gate. That is so, I mean, it's so good. Like, I, I don't know that I've had food that good even in Turkey. I mean, the, the family's Syrian. So I think it's the way they cook things is probably a very specific way. So it's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, that's fun. Joel <laughs> would love that. You know, Laura is my assistant who does booking and all of that stuff. And when people ask her when I'm going to be there and they're going to take me to dinner, they say, what kind of food should we plan on for Suzanne or for Suzanne and Joe? And Laura says generic American. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's like American, new American, yeah. um, Southern cooking. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, Southern cooking works for me too. There's plenty of new American food in uh, Milwaukee as well. But <laughs> Well, if I go to Milwaukee, I'm going to eat at that restaurant. Um, that's what that's happening. Yeah. The one delicious. you're suggesting. Yep. Okay. Sandra, um, you are a woman who happens to be an eight whose mother is Colombian and father Argentinian. And that sounds like a uh, kind of a setup for power. <laughs> true, right? true. It is. It, it, it is. is. <laughs> it, 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 it's like, you can't help yourself. So it occurs to me and did when I was reading uh, your contribution to the devotional series, that in terms of the way that the culture is able to receive female eights uh, as compared to male eights that you had a mountain to climb in order to uh, subdue yourself enough to be heard. Is that, does that ring true for you? Um, well, I don't know. Um, it depends on which culture you're asking about. So yeah. well, um, let's talk about all yeah, of yeah. that you're a part of. <laughs> yeah. So let's talk about all of them. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm, that's the most exciting part about all of this. Um, well, okay. So my mother is Colombian, right? Um, it would have been different if my mother was Argentine and my dad was Colombian. So it's very, it's very, um, distinct. My mother's Colombian and 
they're a super, super warm culture, uh-huh. very demonstrative and emotions are, you know, you know, they're championed and they're encouraged. And so, um, yeah, I would say that I was in the context of, you know, being raised by my mother, I was encouraged to share my opinion, to share my emotions, but positive emotions are better in that culture than negative ones. Okay. Because I think kind of like if, if I were to give the culture a number, it would be kind of a seven, you know, Mm -hmm. very, and I have a strong wing seven. So, um, and then my father's culture, Argentines just like to argue about everything. Literally there's, there's jokes like, um, the only time that two Argentines are not arguing is when they're talking about how awesome they are. And so (laughs) it is, um, it is a get closer through argument culture. Mm -hmm. Um, and, so we grew up arguing a lot in my home. It, yeah. We just grew up arguing a lot. And it was the way that we processed our opinions. It was the way that we learned. It was the way that we connected mm-hmm. um, with my father. And I think my mom was always happy that my dad's family, no one else, like none of my cousins or aunts and uncles lived in the United States. So the only Argentine I knew was my father for like the first part of my life. And yeah. all of our kind of communal connections with family and uh, ethnic and cultural societies were all with my mother's. So Colombian kind of warmer party, happy. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think in both of those settings, I was encouraged to express myself fully. Um, And then I came to, to the context of evangelical or, or Protestant Christianity when I was in junior high. And that culture was totally different as it related to women and expression and emotion and leadership. And um, so, yes, everything changed for me in those yeah. settings. Um, absolutely. So, the, so then I've been navigating that one for the last, you know, 30 years. <laughs> That's a lot. That's a lot when you are um, suited to be in the world in a certain way and it has to be managed all the time. And yet, um, in reading your book, this book, um, I found that you were very willing to be vulnerable. Lots of times as I read eight uh, women authors who live in this culture, I um, find that they explain themselves, say a thing and explain themselves again. And I think it's because they're always trying to navigate. Yeah. And you were careful to set the table for what you were going to say, but that's different than explaining yourself. Yeah. It's kind of like giving people a heads up. Yes. <laughs> like in the meeting, I'll often say I, I worked a lot with, um, well, actually, interestingly, in the denominations I worked in, they're both kind of more uh, conflict avoidant uh, uh-huh. European expressions. And then also I've worked in Asian American leadership settings. And so um, a lot of times I'll start my sentence by saying, I'm asking a question, I'm not making a statement, um, mm-hmm. but I, I want to make sure that I'm, I'm understanding where you're coming from. And then I'll ask it. So I'll say things like that. It's like, right. I know this is going to be a cross-cultural moment. So I'm just mm-hmm. going to say like, I'm asking a question. Mm-hmm. This is not a statement. Um, Cause I'm, I'm catching up on, you know, the, either the topic we're talking about, or I'm new to the setting. So I'll do a lot of that kind of thing where um, I'll say in the beginning of, even if I'm preaching, like, 
you, you may, I used to teach the book of Amos to students and I would get like groups of, uh, let's say men, like specifically men from an engineering school in Indiana. And I'm like, oh no, it's the Midwest. It's an engineering school. Mm-hmm. It's all dudes. Like this is going to be, so I would say like, I'm, you know, we're going to go through the book of Amos and I want to give you a handout of one page. I want to give you just a heads up about prophetic literature. Mm-hmm. Um, if it feels emotive, if it feels aggressive, if it feels assertive, it is, you know, mm-hmm. this is the nature of the prophets. This is how they wrote. And this is what they wanted from us was to elicit um, not only our thoughts, but our emotions and, and to kind of engage our emotions as well. So I'll always like try to cross that bridge. Cause I know once I start preaching or once I start teaching, or once I start engaging, it's just going to feel different to most people in most settings that I'm in, honestly, because I do so much cross-cultural work. So I'm just like giving them a heads up. Uh, When I lead worship, I do the same thing. Like if it feels like I'm telling you what to do, it's because Mm -hmm. I am. That's what Mm -hmm. we do on the West side of Chicago. We don't say, hey, you feel like sitting or if you feel led (laughs) to just stand, if you want to, you know, lift your arms, go ahead and do so. Because I had grown up in churches like that. I'm like, no, the Psalms say clap your hands. Okay. Um, and so I'm going to tell you to clap. That's what I'm going to tell you to do. This is, if you want to worship at home by yourself, stay at home and do that. But here we're together. So we're all clapping our hands. Mm-hmm. Um, so I usually, <laughs> I am kind of in the habit of like, just giving you a heads up. Here I come. <laughs> so would you say, I'd never thought about this till just now. And now I'm so excited to think about it. <laughs> do you think eights are um, prophetic by nature? And let me tell you why I'm asking you that. Because I'm aware that you, I don't know if you know that, that my oldest daughter is an eight. And so I've been walking with an eight for 43 years. And um, I have learned from her to watch for in other eights, a pattern of planning to do a thing, doing the thing, but having already foreseen what problems might come solving those problems so that they don't prohibit continuing to move forward. Yeah. You know, I, I, if I have to think about the eights that I work with, cause I work with a lot of them, um, especially in activism, there are just mm-hmm. a lot of eights in that space. Mm-hmm. So I think an eight like anticipates the problems and the power you're going to hit and then right. solves for those in advance. So yep. Uh, my, my husband used to tell me like, he's, my husband is a one, he's white. Um, he's from the Midwest. He's a, he's a, a project manager. He's like, literally he's everything everybody would celebrate in our kind of spaces that we're in mm-hmm. as far as leadership mm-hmm. and the way he operates and the way he organizes himself. And so um, he would say, you know, you're, you're interesting. You go into a situation and you're like, okay, I'm going to go to this conference or I'm going to go to this gathering or meeting. What should I wear? Like, who's going to be there? Um, how will they receive me? And you're like anticipating everything that could potentially mm-hmm. go bad mm-hmm. so that when you get there, you're prepared for everything that could happen, whether it's rejection or um, feeling out of place or not knowing where the power is. Or So I actually do, I, I plan for every contingency possible, especially if it's bad, like anything that could go wrong, mm-hmm. I'm planning for that. Um, And then I'm trying to figure out like, how will I respond and how could I respond better? And how do I handle myself in those situations? I found you to be uh, quite a theologian in your writing. Um, I, I look forward to an opportunity 
before my life ends to hear you preach. I want to be in the pew listening to you. And I'm not a theologian. So I'm going to have to go back and look at the prophets and see if they planned ahead, if they had already foreseen the problem. But I think it's going to be there most likely. Hopefully if they're uh, prophetic, they saw the problem. Right. (laughs) But the potential in the problem. Um, In the writing, you, uh, first of all, I had the gift of meeting the woman who was your spiritual director, uh, Marilyn Stewart. Um, she came to an event that I did and, um, I was at the event all weekend and she was there all weekend. And I, it, I looked for moments to be with her. So, um, I've got my own sins and my own stuff, but envy is not usually one of them. (laughs) (laughs) I've got mine for sure, but, but, I am envious of, uh, not just the time that you had with her, but the time that she had with you, because, um, I think we are living in a time of opportunity for cross-cultural understanding. And I want more of that. And because she seemed to innately know how to lead whoever she was with. And I'm thankful that you had her as an eight because it appears through all of your writing and the spiritual reflections and the devotional reflections that you offered so generously. It is clear that you were given space for awareness of who you are without having to put too many boundaries around that so that you lose who you are. And one of my hopes for people as they read your book is that they will eights, they will find their way there where you say, uh, early on, you say, you know, there are two things that you need to do. You need to slow down and you need to be intentional about tenderness with those that you love. Honestly, if that was the only thing in the book for eights to work on, it would be enough. And those two things don't happen without the other one. So would you talk about that for a little bit? Yeah. So, um, (laughs) I think, um, you know, because I have a, such a desire to see things different in the world, like, because I, I, I'm imagining usually five, 10 years ahead, like this is what it could be. I, and, and I think there are lots of numbers that are like this, but the eight, maybe seven wing, especially like the amount of energy and intention and intensity that in, in which we're driving forward. Um, it oftentimes, uh, it's hard for anyone around us to slow us down. It's just like, if you can't get on board, like I remember early on saying to this one woman who was uh, mentoring me, like, you know, if you want to find a man, this was like in my thirties. Okay. I was still single. I was like in my late twenties. And she's like, she, her advice to me was like, if you just slow down, maybe someone would be able to like you know, notice kind of be in your space. And I was like, I don't have time to slow down. Like if, if I marry someone, they're going to have to catch up with me because I have stuff to do. There's things in the world that need to get done. I know what God is calling me to. So whoever I find that man is going to have to catch up with me. And sure enough, he did, you know, like he just kind of ran alongside of me and was like, Oh, Hey, what are you doing? You know? Um, But, but eventually he just, you know, I think in friendship and partnership, it was like, you need to slow down. Like, what is it? Your schedule looks insane. 
Mm-hmm. And I think we still have that like every three months or so I'm sitting down with my assistant, with my friend, with a, someone in my small group, with, with, with my, with my, with my partner, with Carl. And we're just like this, what happened, what happened here? And so this is, I began to talk to Marilyn in when I was, before I was 30, like 28. Mm-hmm. And this is something I've been working on since I've, it's 20 years almost now, almost yeah. 20 years of like, how do I have a discipline of slowing down? And so I think that the ceasing, um, it's, it's almost comical if it wasn't so dangerous. Like it's almost comical how often I have to tell myself to slow down if it wasn't dangerous, you know, mm-hmm. um, the ability to pay attention to what's happening in your body. Like I've had like an ache in my leg one time for three years and I didn't attend to it. Um, and then I had to be in physical therapy for a year. I had to get steroid shots. I did all this stuff because I had not attended to a pain that was there. Mm-hmm. I just kept pushing through, um, not attending to my marriage. So there, I mean, there have been times in my husband, because he's a one, because he's a white guy from the Midwest. He's very direct. He's, he, you know, he's an STJ mm-hmm. on the Myers-Briggs. He's like, this is what we need. He just sat down at the table next to me and said, I feel neglected. I feel like everything in life is more important to you than me and our family. And I thank God, like, I, I, I'm like, oh my gosh, thank God that I'm the eight in ministry and I'm a Latina woman because there are cultural, there are cultural values that I carry a cultural ways of being in the world that that was enough to say, oh, wow. Okay. Um, my mother would be so mad at me if she heard you say that, you know, mm-hmm. um, that my family wasn't first. Um, and so there was a lot going on there. But I think the slowing down, sometimes it, it's just dangerous, the pace at which most people, most of us live, mm-hmm. most of us live in the US, but especially AIDS, I think the pace at which we live typically is, 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 it's bad for our health. It's bad for our soul. It's bad for our relationships. Um, and it takes people and who love us and intimacy, I think, to let people in enough to say, yeah, you're not looking, you're not healthy. You're not, you're not mm-hmm. healthy. And mm-hmm. I think, yeah, and when we do slow down, um, we're able to attend to those relationships and extend love, vulnerability, tenderness, but mm-hmm. also it takes those relationships to get us to slow. So it's kind of like sick, yeah. it's kind of connected, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, it, it, it takes a certain kind of person to, like grab onto the shirt of an eight and say enough is enough. Yeah. Enough yep. is enough. That problem and that crisis will be there tomorrow. It's hard to lead an eight. Our daughter <laughs> is married to a nine and we've always, we've always said y'all better figure it out so that you have a division of responsibility and power in your relationship because what feels good to a nine kind of merging for the first 15 years of your marriage won't feel good for the second 15 years. Yeah. And I think what's hard about my relationship, like my partnership with Carl is that something you said a little earlier, that's really, it's really true. Like, I don't know that I developed this as an eight. I think I developed this as a woman of color that I've had to work so hard to be free, to be myself in whatever space I'm in, like to be authentically me and not conform to um, in, in the church world, for example, in ministry to, to be, to preach like and lead like and speak mm-hmm. like and write like a, a white male or in, in other settings to be like and preach like and, 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 and interact and facilitate like a white female, like mm-hmm. I'm me and this is what it means to be me. And on top of it, most of my mentors have been black women. And so 
I've learned from them, but I'm not a black woman. I don't have their experiences, their cultural values, their racialized uh, uh, kind of life experiences. And so I've had to really work to find my voice. And so I think as I'm finding it, I'm just exercising the ability to be myself authentically and also to do it in a way that doesn't that doesn't center myself as an individual, but the, the community in, in a way. So that does mean that sometimes I hold back. That does mean that sometimes I speak differently mm-hmm. or I code switch or I adjust myself, but it's not because I'm afraid to be me. It's not because I don't feel like I can be fully me. It's because it, the particular setting is, is inviting a way of being that, that's needed for the life of the community in that space. So I think for, for my husband, you know, he's a white man. He's, again, he's wealthy, he's educated, he's homosexual, he's, he's heterosexual, you know, so in his case, he is the man, literally, like in all the books of yeah. like the desired norm in the US, he's the man. And so he is used to walking in a room and just being himself and everyone that receives him. Mm. And he's pretty sure people are going to like him. He's pretty sure people are going to listen to him. And he's pretty sure that no one's going to question his authority. Um, in my case, it's like the opposite. And so when we come together at home, in our own little world, um, it, it is kind of a, you know, he wants to leave enough room for me to be myself and not feel like I have to change to be at home. It's my home, you know? Sure. Um, and at the same time, I'm like a bit much, you know? So sometimes he just turns to me in the kitchen and says like, are you done? <laughs> like, are, are you done with your, you know, once an hour of complaining, are you done? Like, or he'll turn to me in the car and say like, Sandra, I'm on your side. <laughs> why are you fighting like me like this I'm on your side I'm not I'm I'm like oh I'm sorry I'm sorry I wasn't even talking about you I'm like okay I'll just stop just give me a minute yeah. <laughs> so he he does have that like it's hard because you know and then people ask us sometimes they're like hey are, Carl are you okay like I like what do they think I do to you at home <laughs> yeah um, I'm married to a nine and he, he's the guy too. You know, he walks in the room, he's a pastor and like, he's the guy and he's the guy everybody likes and all that stuff. And lots of times if he's with me somewhere where I'm teaching, people will walk up to him as we're leaving and say, we'll pray for you. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. You said so many things that I want to talk about already, but I want to back up to intentional tenderness for a second. And then I want to talk about some of the other things you just said. I, I would love for people to hear from an aggressive, beautiful woman that it's okay to offer intentional tenderness. It doesn't have to, the feeling doesn't have to precede what you choose to do in relationship with the people that you love the most. I have to be careful as a two of being intentionally strong because I'm always tender if I don't work at it from the other extreme. And I, I'm, I sometimes think that when we get to talking about Enneagram numbers, that the assumption is that, well, if you're these numbers, then you're a feeling type. And so you're all automatically tender. And if you're these numbers, then you're not. And so you get a pass on tenderness and you don't get a pass. And you don't get a pass on strength either. Did you come to intentional tenderness through a loss or an event? Or did you just think, oh, I need to, I need to really watch how I handle this so that I 
my people know how much I love them? Or is it another thing? Well, you know, what's interesting is, and I wrote this and I wrote this, I think in the introduction or throughout the book, but what's interesting is that um, one of the things I was, I have been working on with spiritual directors over the years is I don't identify strongly with a lot of the descriptions of the eights that are given in certain mm-hmm. spaces. Mm-hmm. Typically those descriptions are, are given uh, of the eight feels like, to me, it feels like a man with power. So it feels um, engendered mm-hmm. and it feels like it comes from a certain socioeconomic uh, position, like as if you have all these choices in life and just the way it's described. And so for me, I really have had to say like, first I was like, maybe I'm a two. For a long time, I thought, well, maybe I'm a two. And then, you know, Marilyn was like, well, keep listening, keep listening. You know, she didn't say anything. I was like, oh no, I'm definitely an eight, you know? Um, but I think for me, it's, I'm an NFP on the, on the Myers-Briggs mm-hmm. temperament. So I'm a very strong feeler, like intuitive feeler. Like it's, it's probably the, for me, the number one superpower and facilitation for ministry and kind of the, the DEI work that I do. So I'm, and I, again, I was raised by a Colombian mother. So right. everything is about how other people think, about harmony in a room, about making people feel welcome, about hospitality, about making sure that you extend yourselves um, so that as people walk into your space, they feel loved and, and warm in your presence. You know, mm-hmm. So I think, um, and I have a strong woo on the strengths finder. It's like my number one strength. So for me, I feel like a Latina, Colombian woman, woo, ENFP, eight, feels and looks different than an NT, um, like in my, in my, in my world here on, on the West side of Chicago, you know, black or Puerto Rican male coach, you know, mm-hmm. like they just mm-hmm. feel different. And so, um, I, I don't know. I think it's less that I've tried to be, tried to work at it and more that I have tried to lean into other parts of me. Like, if I feel my gut rising, like this happened today, some, something was happening. I heard, heard news and I, like my, I felt my, I felt my body just like my whole chest, like lifted up. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like I wanted to text something or write something. I just started like breathing and I started listening to music in the car. And I just started thinking about like, what could be happening for that person? You know what? So I think it, those kinds of things, they're probably primarily held through cultural values that I have or other temperament and personality mm-hmm. um, outliers that kind of soften that. I, that's what I think it is. But but I do have some times I don't want to be like I, I all through seminary, I sat in, in the front row of my classroom um, because I didn't want people to hear me crying because mm-hmm. I would cry all through my lectures. Like God's word was just so compelling to me. And I would just, so showing vulnerability, crying, mm-hmm. um, sharing something that's feels shameful. I've done that mm-hmm. all through, like, I don't think that's hard for me at all. It is hard for me to tell people that I love them. And it is hard for me to tell them how much I love them because mm-hmm. I feel like I could be rejected. So I don't know what that's attached to, but mm-hmm. we're still working on that in therapy. So, um, so for example, I very rarely tell my husband how awesome he is but I tell a lot of people how awesome he is and how much I love him and all the specific, like all the yep. specific ways that my husband is an amazing partner to me. And then I tell him, Oh, today I was talking to, you know, our yeah, so Mary. it's once removed. Yeah. And I, I told her that I just thought you were so blank, 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 blank. Um, and so he, he just laughs at me. He's like, 
no, you need to tell me to my face. Not, I told Mary that you were awesome, but Carl, you are awesome. You're my love. I don't know what I would do without you. You know, like, um, and same goes to like my mom. Like I, it's very hard for me to, you know, I'm not one to like look at my mom face to face and be like, mom, you're such a great mom. I just love you so much. I, you know, mm-hmm. like the way that you parented us and created an environment, like I never do that to her. I just tell other people about her. And so I think that's one thing I'm, I learned over the years, like, oh, I'm really bad at that. Like, what do I feel like I have to lose there? <laughs> yeah. Yep. Just once removed. So, uh, and, and I think from the Enneagram perspective, there's a possibility that it's you, that's what you have to say, but you don't want the other person to come back with more. And then you have to come back with more. It's like, if you have it once removed, it's already happened. And so you're not going to get caught in a big feeling exchange that you're not in charge of. Right. Yeah, probably. I mean, I've never, it really, I just, I'm like, I almost, I'm just trying to learn how to tell people to their face what sure. how I feel sure. um, and not feel like I'm so exposed, you know? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so exposed. Um, I'll tell you what is exposed in this part of the conversation. And that is that, you know, I get very unhappy with people who tell other people what number they think they are and all of that. Cause I'm always saying uh, it's determined by motivation and not behavior. And you can't do that. You have no idea what number other people are, but from all of the conversation with you to this point, and I'm sure it will continue beyond one of the things that a, a big body of work that's going to have to be done if the Enneagram is going to continue to be global wisdom is we're going to have to have lots of conversations around uh, my daughter, who is a white woman and an eight, and uh, I'm adopted, so I don't know what my background is, um, but she's very different than you and you're both in the same age range and you both are eights and you both are educators and teachers and you're in front of people and you're smart and yet your motivation is so different because you were uh you come from different cultures and we're gonna have to figure out ways to have that conversation for Enneagram wisdom to be what it can be and by we, I mean uh, the all of us, all of us. So I'm so grateful for the way that you speak into Enneagram wisdom and into the spiritual lives of people who will read your daily reflections, that there is this really important piece to all of us that gets set aside when we start doing Enneagram work, because we're so glad to find a body of people that we're a part of yeah. that we then don't stay with it long enough to fetter out the nuance. And thank you for doing that in all of your talking and in your writing, you, you really do a great job of that. And that's a particular gift that you have that I hope the Enneagram world will get to have more of. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. It's been, a, it, it's been the, the work of, of, being able to utilize the tool and the wisdom for myself, you know, because I, I knew that it was, I knew that it was preparing me and enabling me to a, a deeper place of freedom, yep. but I, I had to interpret. Um, and 
I don't know that I would have been able to do that without Marilyn. Yeah. Um, because she, she, even though she is a white woman from the U.S., she had spent so many decades in Latin America right. that the way in which she interacted with me integrated and assumed those cultural values weaved into our conversation um, and, and always talked about social location um, and equity as a part of um, that conversation. So mm -hmm. I think she actually, what's interesting is towards like, she started working with our, um, our staff team. So I was like the executive pastor of a church and I had a staff team of eight to 10 people and all people of color. And I just was looking for someone like a leadership person and, a, you know, a spiritual director to work mm -hmm. with us. And I couldn't find anyone. And so I just, I told Marilyn, like I said, I know that we have a special relationship, but would you be willing to come to the West side of Chicago and work with my, with my team? And so she came a few times to work with the whole team to do Enneagram introductions, to do kind of laying the foundations to talk about how social location um, and mistyping happens for um, mm -hmm. Brown and black communities. And then, mm -hmm she met one-on-one -on -one with each of us over the course of the year. And then soon thereafter, she became sick. And so in that time, um, you know, I talked to her and I said, someone needs to write on this. Like some, but some Enneagram expert needs to write on this. And she turned to me and said, she said yes, you need to write on this. Mm -hmm. um, and I said, well, would you, would you write it with me? And she was like, no, I don't want to write it, but I'll help you with it. You know, like I'll help you mm -hmm. with it. You want to take on the project. And um, it was because I think we both had a sense that there was something about what really felt like almost like a luxury or a privilege of stopping to, and to ask, how did you make me God? how am I made and what does it mean to be me in this world mm -hmm. and to operate well in this world that, that so many of my colleagues in my setting have never had that. And so how do I do that in a way that still preserves and honors their cultural values and distinctives? I don't think very many people were asking that six years ago. Absolutely um, not. Absolutely. And not. that's kind of when the journey began for us as a team. So, yeah. And it's such an important question for us to be asking. And, and it feels uh, vast. It, it feels really like a really big, really big thing. And yet it comes together in your reflections in ways that are uh, un easily, uh, easily incorporated, I think. So one of my favorites of all that you wrote, and I have a bunch of them, but one of them is, um, and I don't even know this numbers, this one was early, early. I don't know which number I have it marked, but I want to read your writing to you for a minute. And then I'd like for you to talk about it. Cause I think it's real important along with lots more. Like we don't have time for me to read all the good stuff you wrote. <laughs> the invitation today is not necessarily to rest, but to thank yourself. It's okay to notice pain. It's human to feel exhaustion. It's your superpower to push through. But some days we just got to walk in gratitude for the things we were able to accomplish instead of wondering why we could not do more. When we practice gratitude, we can continue to be the self-confident and willful people that people depend on to get the job done. When we practice gratitude, we can release ourselves from the need to confront and challenge the things we aren't being invited to change. When we practice gratitude, we invest in our own healing. 
I want you to talk about that, but I want to add one more thing before you do. And that is that I have really encouraged people to read numbers other than their own, because there are ways of seeing that um, are, are helpful to all nine numbers, but we are each locked in our own way of seeing. And so we miss a lot as a result of that. I've read lots of books on gratitude. I tried doing a gratitude journal. I've um, kind of went with Brother David Stendlerast for a while on gratitude and did all right. I've never read anything as powerful on gratitude as that paragraph. That's an all numbers teaching right there. Um, and now I'd love for you to talk about gratitude and how you got there. And I particularly am in, in interested in two lines. It's okay to notice pain. And when we practice gratitude, we invest in our own healing. Yeah. Wow. You know, so this obviously was written during um, the kind of height of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And I think um, I just wrote a lot of things when I look back and I thought, I, I can't believe I wrote that out loud. You know, like I, wrote it out, I can't believe I said that out loud. Um, I, I think that some of us, and it's just not, it's not just the eight. I think the one struggles with this as well, just as I look at my own pace at the three, mm -hmm. maybe. Um, but I think we're just oh, so much more could be done. It's like, I didn't do this. I didn't accomplish this. I, mm -hmm. this, this, this evil is still out there in the world. This, I want to change this. And so I, I think at some point you, you just have to say to yourself, like, I did a good job today. Like, I did well, you know, like, thank you. Thank you. You're thanking yourself, you know, thanking your body, thanking your um, God for sustaining you. Um, just to receive God's pleasure in you. And so someone, I think it was Lena Sanchez, who's now my spiritual director, but at the time was a intercessory prayer partner. She worked with all of my worship teams that I did globally. Mm -hmm. And she prayed this prayer over us one time that we would experience God's pleasure in us. And I had, I don't think I ever had thought about that before. Mm -hmm. So I pray it a lot now over myself and over others that we would experience both God's presence and God's pleasure in us. And I think that allows us to say like, who I am is good. Like what I did was good. Mm -hmm. Like the fact that I'm still like the fact that I produced that we produced anything during covid like at all is like amazing. <laughs> like, um, yeah, it is. I have two young children. I did remote learning. I started a nonprofit. I wrote a book, you know, and a couple other chapters. And I, like, I just, I did good, you know? And I think sometimes I just, I feel like there's more, there's more, there's more. I see 10 years out and I know where I want to go and there's more. And sometimes you just have to stop and say, thank you, body, for helping me get through the day. Mm -hmm. Um, Thank you, God, for giving me this awesome family, great kids, a mother who like nurtured me so well, a dad who championed me. Like, thank you for my neighbors who live upstairs and downstairs. You know, like, um, I yeah. think that that is also cultivated very deeply in black and brown communities as like everything around you just seems like it's falling apart, like all the time, like somebody's dying of something, you know, whether mm -hmm. it's the pandemic or mm -hmm. gunshots or, you know, like, so I think the idea that you would create space in your life just to thank yourself, to thank God, to thank, you know, your family member to, mm -hmm. to, to practice gratitude, I think is it sustains us. 
because life really is that hard. Like, I just feel like it really is that bad. Like you can't Mm -hmm. turn on the news without seeing something horrific and um, you don't want to escape from those things, but you can't sustain only, only staring at evil all the time. You know, you just can't sustain it. So I think I do have a gratitude journal. I do write in it. I don't often journal. Like I don't slow down oftentimes, Mm -hmm. but when Mm -hmm. I do slow down, so I do like a weekly Sabbath, I do a monthly retreat. I do three days of silence twice a year. Um, And when I am pausing for those things, I usually write stuff down. Like I force myself to say like, this is what I can be grateful for Mm -hmm. um, in the little things. Like mm, my garden this summer was amazing. Um, my husband plants the the vegetables, but I do the flowers and I just, <laughs> it's, it's fall right now, but there are these amazing Mexican sunflowers, these mm-hmm. kind of strange, dangerous looking purple flowers that come out. Um, and every time I walk from my alley to the front of the house, I pass mm-hmm. those flowers. I put them there on purpose. Um, and when I pass by there, um, I don't really care if the neighbors see the flowers. I care if I see the flowers Yeah. yeah. and I think to myself, thank you for extra days of sun in Chicago. Like what an amazing garden we have in October in Chicago. So I think for me, it's a way of sustaining me and bringing healing to the parts of me that know tomorrow morning, I'm going to have to get back up and do this thing all over again. Mm -hmm. Say the hard thing no one wants to say, Mm -hmm. build the thing no one can imagine, stand in the bridges and in the places that sometimes I wonder why I'm doing it, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, but I'm going to, I'm going to be grateful for these things because otherwise it's going to feel terrible. Like the work is going to feel terrible. So I one time had this, I want to say kid, but they were a 20 year old young adult. They moved into our neighborhood and they were like talking about all the bad things about the neighborhood. And I just turned to them and I said, if you don't like it here, Mm -hmm. you should go because there's so much beauty here. Like, look across the street. I had to show them, like, look at, see the, the grandmother with her grandchildren. Look at the garden over there. Look at, if you can't stop and see beauty and be grateful and see the love and the, the brilliance that is in this community, if all you see is brokenness and pain and systems of oppression, which are here, but if that's all you see, then you will never make it in this space. Yeah. Because that's not how we see our neighborhood. Yeah. That's yeah. not how we see our community. Um, and so I think that is both a practice and probably a value that was maybe given to me by the churches that I grew up in. Yeah. Yeah. Love that. All right. Let's talk about super strength. Um, uh, that, that was day 16. It's kind of like you, you let people kind of get their feet in the water before you hit <laughs> with super strength. And you said, As a Nate, I've learned to be careful with my strength, mostly because I've been told that if I'm not, I can harm people. I was given a talk very similar to the one given to Rogue from the Marvel X-Men and Elsa from Frozen. Here it is. I've spent much of my leadership with imaginary gloves on so that my God-given potent energy would not kill or freeze someone. My self-talk was so bad that I told my therapist, most people were afraid to get close to me for fear of getting hurt. The narrative I carry is that people would rather I not be around, but they tolerate me because I get things done. That's astonishingly vulnerable. And it is what 
eights want to say. Eights want to be able to say those words because they feel that over and over. And they've said them to me and all of the different ways that they can be said. And so uh, as I'm hearing you talk about what God's called you to do and your God-given potency, is there a payoff to being vulnerable that makes it worth writing like that? Or was that done just for other people? Oh, I mean, I cried the entire time I wrote this book, y'all. I hope you, if you're not an aider, um, I cried the entire time. I was, mm-hmm. I was, I think it was therapy for me. It was, I was saying what I was feeling, what I had really only said to my closest friends and mm-hmm. my partner in life. Like, that's it. That's the only people that get to hear those things. They know I'm scared. I'm scared every time I open the door and walk outside, you know, like, mm-hmm. um, I just have to tell you, I, I, <laughs> I didn't expect the, I didn't expect you to be so forthcoming and so vulnerable Well, I didn't know you, but you, you know what I'm saying? I, as I looked at, okay, they're going to be nine books written by nine numbers. This is great. And then I thought this one will do this. And I, I'll try to be careful about perfection with the one. And, you know, I had all the stuff, right. I didn't see this coming at all. And so I don't know if it, it's because it was during COVID it doesn't matter to me what, yeah. what, the, what it is, because it's going to be so helpful to AIDS. Yeah. I think, I mean, again, like I, I don't think like, that's why I struggled with being an eight. I was like, are they just saying that because I'm kind of a, a, a expressive person. And so they're seeing me like as an eight, because, because the descriptions for me of like being, not being vulnerable, not sharing your pain, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. not mm-hmm. admitting when you're wrong, that just doesn't describe me at all. Um, I mean, it's hard to say you're sorry, or it's hard Mm -hmm. to talk about how lonely you are. But I, I, you know, when I, right after I had my son, um, you know, for the weeks after that, I was so lonely. I mean, ask any any young, young folks who just had children. I mean, you're so lonely. You're just there like feeding and changing children for so long. I would just call people and say, Hey guys, I'm really lonely. Nobody has checked in on me, you know, like, um, can somebody check in on me and, and, um, Hey guys, uh, my husband is traveling and I feel like everyone thinks I'm busy. Like the way they perceive yes. me is like Sandra's busy. She's got stuff to do. She's got be, yep. she has crowds of people who, you know, I don't know where that comes from. Like, I don't know where, like how I'm projecting that, but I'm like, I, nobody invited me to their party. Like I will say things like that. Um, <laughs> And, and I told my husband, I said, even when I say it, they're like, oh, that's so strong of you. I'm like, no, I'm not trying to be strong. I'm just telling you I'm lonely. Um, this is me being weak. This is me being weak. So I, I don't think it was because of COVID. I think it's because I, I believe that the more real you could be with yourself, the more free you'll be. So when you say with your, with your words out loud to someone else that, that you can trust, I feel these things. I experience these things. Um, you know, for me to be able to tell my therapist, like, I feel really rejected. Everywhere I go, someone's going to hate what I say. And it's my job. And I don't know how to mm-hmm. do this anymore. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I so told that to my spiritual director. My spiritual director said, you need to see a therapist because there's like a seed of rejection in your life. Mm-hmm. That, that's something from something happened. Something yeah. happened. And the more I was in therapy, I was like, yeah, I mean, growing up as a, as a fat brown kid in a white 
wealthy suburb did not do things, did not do good things for my ego. Mm -hmm. Like not being able to speak English until I was seven or eight did not do good things to my ego. So when I come off a stage, for example, if I'm preaching, it doesn't Mm -hmm. matter if it's 200 or 20,000. If I come off the stage, the first question I ask my husband is, did I make sense? Yep. Did I make sense? And he was like, I don't know what is wrong with you. Mm -hmm. He's like, do you not see everybody in there? did you not see what happened when you opened your mouth and spoke that word of freedom? But what I feel is I didn't make sense. People didn't understand me. People are going to reject me. People don't like me. They wish I wasn't here. They're not going to invite me to their party. So I, I carry that all the time. And so my therapist is like, we had to work through that, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I feel like I wrote it because that's how lots of us feel. There you go. <laughs> I wrote it because and- a lot of us do feel that way and the from any room perspective your eightness is what keeps you doing it when you feel that way it's like yeah this may cost me but i'm going to do it anyway because it's mine to do this is mine to do um i've been asking this new question at the end of my podcasts and i um kind of anticipated asking it and I have no idea what you're going to say. No clue, which I like a lot. My, my new question is, what are you curious about? Oh, my gosh. I'm, I'm so curious about um, as it relates to the topic that we're talking about. I'm just, you're just no, curious about anything. Just curious, anything. I'm honestly, I'm really curious to see what this next um, generation of leaders is going to do about the division and polarization in, in the church. I'm really curious as to what they're going to do, how they want to solve it, how they want to find a path forward. Um, That's what I spend most of my time asking. Like I ask questions, why are people, why is this happening how can we make it better? Who's going to make this better? How can this next generation with their, the way they see things, the way they mm-hmm. operate, um, the values that they have, how might they make things different? What are they imagining could be different? Um, particularly as it relates to the church in this time where I don't, I don't feel like we're going to get less polarized. I think it's going to get worse. I think mm-hmm. it's just starting. Me too. Um, and I'm curious as to what solutions they might have. I'm curious about the fact that you think it's the next generation that has to figure it out. Cause I, I think you're pretty well equipped to, you know, kind of step out there your own self. Well, for me, I feel like if I could be of help, you know, that's why I do, there you I go. do a lot of cohorts and a lot of coaching. I feel yeah. like I want to be a part of the solution, sure. but sure. I really feel like there's something there's some charism, some gift, some kind of way each generation sees things. And uh, right this one's got some really interesting ideas and values. And I, if I can be kind of like a, you know, a midwife for that, I will do that. Oh, that's perfect language. I've enjoyed talking with you so much and I want to hear you preach real life, real time, <laughs> front row. And um, yeah, I have, I have so much to learn from you. I hope I get the chance to do it. I would love to. 